For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supplication of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor, yet what I shall choose I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you. Yeah. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, how we thank you for your word. We ask you now that as we come to this precious portion of your word, that you would fill us with your spirit, that your blessing would be upon the word as it is preached. And the word as it is heard. We pray that in these things, that Christ himself will be magnified and glorified and exalted in our midst. That we will be comforted by his presence, by the Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We come this morning in the preaching of the word to Paul's epistle to the Philippians, and in particular to chapter 1, verses 19 to 26, if we've just heard. We'll be looking this morning and then again this evening at Paul's great expression of Christian confidence, summarized here in verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In that single verse of Scripture is contained a whole practical theology of the Christian life. And so we come to this portion of God's Word this morning. As we come, we need to remind ourselves that this is God's Word to us and to our children. This is the very voice of Christ calling us to a closer communion with Him and with one another. For that is the Christian life. We're being reminded here what we ought to be and what we ought to desire. And we're being reminded of what we are, of how far short we have come in our devotion to God through His Son. But we can't stop there. We're being reminded once again of the grace of God and of the gracious provision of the blood of Jesus Christ and of the Spirit of Christ whose whole work is to conform us more and more and more to the image and likeness of His Son. I want us to approach our text this morning with a willingness to let the Word of God search our own hearts, all of our hearts, and with a willingness to be transformed and renewed by it in the whole of our redeemed humanity, in all that we are. 
heart, mind, soul, and strength. Body, mind, affections, and will. And what I hope that we'll see this morning from this portion of God's Word is that the life of faith is a life from Christ, in Christ, and unto Christ, enabling us to live in all circumstances and settings as if Christ Himself truly is our life. With that in mind, I want to consider three things from Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 to 26, as we seek to apply this teaching to our hearts and lives. By the Spirit's help, I want us to see in these three points that the Christian life is a life of, first, boldly magnifying Christ. Second, ardently desiring Christ. And third, confidently rejoicing in Christ. So boldly magnifying Christ, ardently desiring Christ, and confidently rejoicing in Christ. Let's look now at our first point, boldly magnifying Christ. The first thing that we want to see here in our text is that the life of faith is indeed a life of boldly magnifying Christ. But even that is not saying enough. The life of faith is a life of boldly magnifying Christ in all circumstances and in all settings precisely because Christ is worth living and dying for. This is the heart of what Paul is saying in these verses. And this is really the great theme of the whole epistle to the Philippian church. You'll, you'll sometimes hear that the theme of the book of Philippians is joy. And it's quite true that the note of joy is a dominant note throughout the letter. But the joy that comes through in Paul's letter to the Philippians is not an abstract kind of joy. It's a joy that has no earthly parallel or comparison. It's a joy produced by the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. And it's a joy that comes even in the midst of great suffering and great affliction. A joy that comes even in the midst of great suffering and great affliction. It's a joy that shines brightly even in distress. It's a joy that comes, as Paul will say in chapter 3, when we learn to count whatever we might have counted gain in this life as loss for Jesus Christ. It's the joy of being willing to suffer the loss of all things, even life itself, for Christ. In order that we might be found in Him, not having a righteousness that is our own, a righteousness that comes from ourselves and our own law-keeping, but rather a righteousness that is entirely outside of us, that is entirely in Christ, and that is imputed to us and received by us only by that free gift of faith, that gift of God Himself. And this is why Paul has been able in chapter 3 to say that his one great desire is that he might know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And don't miss this. And the fellowship of his sufferings. Being conformed to his death. 
And ultimately, Paul's great hope is verse 11, chapter 3, that he might attain to the resurrection of the dead. Is that your great hope this morning? Is that what consumes you? Is that what you think about when things are gone? But there's a day coming. And Christ will return with His saints and for His saints. And that we, if we have died, will be with the Lord forever. We raise God to enjoy the blessings of the new creation. That was Paul's great hope. That's what consumed him. That's what he thought about in his existence and in his You see, Paul is writing from prison. He has no earthly or natural reason whatsoever for joy. Personally, he's suffering. Personally, he longs for his suffering to be over, just as you and I long for our sufferings to be over, whatever they are. He's just like you and me in that way. But Paul also knows that his sufferings and his afflictions have a far greater and more glorious purpose. They serve a far more glorious end. And the context of our verses helps us to see that. Verses 12 to 18. Paul wants the Philippians to see the big picture of what is happening. He's he's in prison, but that doesn't mean that he's lost hope. Even in prison, the gospel is being preached. Other prisoners are being encouraged by the Spirit's work in Paul to stand boldly for the truth. And Paul knows that some preach Christ for selfish motives, but he also knows that whatever else might be true, Christ is being preached. And he rejoices in that. It gives him great, great joy to know that Christ is being preached. Is that what gives you the greatest joy? In all of your distress, to know that Christ and Him crucified and Him risen and Him returned is being preached. Are you able to see in your own afflictions? Are you able to see your afflictions themselves in the light of how Christ is using you for His own glory and for the salvation of sinners? Brothers and sisters, sometimes in our afflictions, whether they're personal or whether they're greater on a church scale or on a national scale, sometimes in our afflictions, we have the tendency and the temptation to magnify the affliction, to magnify the distress, to magnify the problem so that the problem and the suffering and the distress is all that we see. What Paul does here, what I am encouraging you from the Word of God this morning to do, is not to magnify your distress, but to magnify Christ. And you see, as you magnify Christ, as Christ is magnified, as Christ is glorified, then your suffering is put into its proper perspective. Paul knows something else, and that's what we see beginning in verse 19. He knows that all of these things will turn out for His deliverance. For I know that this will turn out 
for my deliverance through your prayer and the supplicate and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body. The word Paul uses, that word deliverance, it can mean either his deliverance from prison or it can mean his deliverance into the presence of God at his death. And that's important because both possibilities are in view in this passage. Paul doesn't even seem to know for sure what the Lord's purpose for him is in that regard. He doesn't seem to have direct revelation about that. But one thing he knows, whatever happens, I will be delivered. And more importantly, whatever happens, Christ's church will remain until the end of the day. Paul's deliverance, whether from prison or from the sufferings and miseries of life in this fallen and sin-cursed world, Paul's deliverance will come. Paul is convinced that that will come as an answer to the prayers of the Philippian saints for him. You see how prayer and the ministry of the Word work so closely together? This is an encouragement for us to be praying privately for the church and for the elders of the church and for the ministers of the gospel. But not only privately in our family worship. In our times of public prayer, whenever the church gathers together corporately to pray, God is at work through the prayers of His people. And it's through the prayers of His people that God makes known the wonders of His deliverance. Paul is convinced that it will come as an answer to the prayers of the Philippian saints for him, that his deliverance, whether from prison or from suffering and misery in this sin-cursed world, will come through prayer. Notice how he includes the Philippians in all of this. Notice how he encourages them that he is not the hero of the story. But God is working both through the proclamation of His Word and through the effectual, fervent prayers of His people to supply such an outpouring of His Spirit that Paul and those that he is imprisoned with will be granted the boldness that they need in their suffering to continue to preach Christ and then crucified even in the face of death itself. And so Paul goes on to say, but it's in this way that Christ will be magnified. And that word magnified means to be lifted up or made great. Paul is, is not ashamed of the gospel for he knows that it's the power of God unto salvation. Paul also knows that the Philippians are praying for him and that God will surely hear the prayers of his own children. As a father, here's the cries of the son of his father. So he's able to say with great boldness that Christ will be magnified, Christ will be lifted up, and will draw all men to himself, whether Paul glorifies him in life or in death. He's not going to be ashamed whether he lives or whether he dies. It matters not what Caesar says. What matters is what Christ has accomplished for him at the cross. Christ crucified means that Christ must be magnified. 
Which means that Paul and we must also apply this to ourselves. That we need not be fearful, but rather joyful. For as Calvin, John Calvin puts it, if we live and die to Him, we are His in life and in death. And so Paul is prepared to rejoice in Christ and to preach Christ whether he lives or whether he dies. The life of faith, brothers and sisters, is a life of boldly, boldly magnifying Christ. That brings us to our second point, ardently desiring Christ. Where does this courage to stand boldly for Christ and to proclaim the glory of Christ and to magnify Christ's body and soul and life and death. Where does this courage, this passion, this zeal, and this boldness come from? Well, that brings us to our second main point this morning, which is that the life of faith is a life of ardently desiring Christ. And it's this ardent desire for Christ, for Christ as a crucified and risen and ascended and reigning Savior, not for Christ as a principle or Christ as a doctrinal proposition, but for Christ as a person, as the God-man, the one who gave himself not for angels, but for us. It's this desire that comes through here in verses 21 to 23. For, me, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is Paul is setting before us this great spiritual dilemma. The fountain and the foundation of his hope is what he says in verse 21 when he says, for to me to live is Christ. He's simply stating in a different way when he says in so many other places, I have been crucified with Christ and the life that I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and laid down his life for me, that Christ is my life. Christ is everything to me. Paul is facing the greatest threat any of us can ever face, the threat of death. The scriptures are clear. It is appointed for us once to die, and after that, the judgment. Death is not the end of our conscious existence in this world. And this, for the unbeliever, is what makes death so terrifying and so tragic. Why the unbeliever wants to push death away and not think about it. To die outside of Christ is to die without hope. To die without any reason whatsoever for hope. To die a death that leads ultimately to what Jesus warned would be an eternal state of consciousness weeping and gnashing of teeth, endless torment under the righteous and relentless wrath of God. But Paul is not a man who is in bondage to the fear of death as none of us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ should be. He's a man who's been set free from that fear by the grace of God in the Gospel. He's a man who is in Christ meaning that his life all that he is is united to Christ. 
Meaning that Christ is in him and that he is in Christ and that because of this wonderful union with Christ, he can now say that there is something more precious to him even than his life in this world. Again, something that no unbeliever could truly say. Are you able to say that this morning? Or if I could put it another way, is Christ your very life? I don't mean Christianity. I mean it's Christ. Your very life. You see, Paul is saying that it's this that makes him a Christian. That Christ is his life. Christ is the very focal point, the ground, the goal, and the source of his existence. And so whether he lives or whether he dies, he lives for Christ, and he dies for Christ. So in this light, Paul states his dilemma. He says that he is hard-pressed between two possible extremes, two possible outcomes. He trusts that either way, Christ will be magnified in his body. He belongs body and soul to Jesus Christ. He's not his own. He's bought with a price. And so he feels hard-pressed. If you were to ask him, Paul, what would you prefer? To continue your life and your ministry in this world? Or to go on to be with Christ? To see Him who is your life face to face without suffering or without sin. Paul's immediate answer is, I'm hard-pressed. And the word that's used here is an interesting one. Paul uses that same word in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 14, where he says, The love of Christ compels us. It's the very same word. It's a word that expresses a strong, even irresistible force or impulse and the verb actually has the meaning of holding something together with such force that it can't come apart. Children, maybe you built something out of wood with your dad, with your mom, and you know that when you glue two pieces of wood together, you need a lot of pressure to keep those pieces in place before the glue dries. And so you get clamps and you hold those pieces tightly together. And that's the idea here. The idea of being hard-pressed is the idea of being squeezed together from two different directions of, of feeling this equal and opposite pressure from two sides. And that gives you a sense of what Paul is trying to express. But notice this, and this is really very important. One of the two things that Paul feels hard-pressed between is a simple choice or is it, I should say, a simple choice between life or death? Not at all. Paul tells us what it is. It's the strength of two ardent desires, two fervent desires in his heart. He desires two things. One for himself and one for the Philippians. One for himself and one for the church of Jesus Christ. On the one hand, he desires to depart and by that, he doesn't just mean death, but rather he means living on after death and being in the very presence, face to face with his Savior. He knows that to be with Christ is 
far back. But what he means, of course, is that that would be far better for Paul. There's another consideration, isn't there? Because Paul is united to Christ, and being united to Christ, Paul's affections and desires are united to those of Christ, and Christ's desire, Christ's ardent and fervent desire is for his body. For his body. For the church. For the church that he died for, and for the church that he is coming again for. And this is what most, what must ultimately settle the matter for Paul. This is what it means for Paul, or for you, or for me to say, for me to live as Christ. It means to be able to say that no matter what my own desire may be for myself, even if it's a good desire, what ultimately matters is not my desire for myself, but Christ's desire for me and for His church. In that way, you follow in the very footsteps of Christ who said, not my will be done, but your will, O Father, be done. And if that means that I'm called to suffer on in this world for the sake of Christ, for the glory of Christ, for the gospel of Christ, for the church of Christ, then if my life is truly in Christ, and if it's my ardent desire to worship and to serve and to follow Christ with all that I am, then I will pray, not my will be done, but yours. That brings us to our last point. Confidently rejoicing in Christ. The last thing that we need to see this morning is that the life of faith is a life of confidently rejoicing in Christ. Even in affliction. Even in distress. There's a deep inner settledness and contentment and joy that can come in the heart of one of God's children or in the hearts of His people in the church. Even when the tears are flowing. That's what it's talking about. Paul's joy, the joy of the Spirit, is in knowing that whatever he is called to endure for the sake of Christ, it's all for the glory of Christ, so that Christ might be magnified in the preaching of the Word and in the faithful worship and witness of the saints. He's learned in whatever state the Lord calls him to serve him, he can in that state be content. He's learned that whatever he is called to suffer for Christ's sake, it is literally nothing in comparison to what Christ suffered for him. This is really the main conclusion of our text. What does it mean for you and me to say that for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, it means that our greatest earthly joy is to be found in worshiping, serving, following, and bearing witness to Christ no matter what our earthly circumstances might be, and no matter what the personal cost yourselves. That's the conclusion. And one of the best ways that you can do that, your brothers and sisters, is when suffering comes, whether it's personal suffering or corporate suffering, 
when it comes to magnify Christ, to magnify His sufferings, to see your sufferings in the light of His sufferings, and to remember that His sufferings were anything. That puts your sufferings in the proper perspective. That enables you to magnify Christ and not your own sufferings. What Paul desires for the Philippians is that his confidence and his joy would also be theirs. So what is this confidence? What is this joy? Well, look with me at verse 24. He says, Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy and faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Paul resolves the dilemma by, by practicing what he himself has preached. If Christ died for me, then I should no longer live for myself, but for him who died for me and rose again, 2 Corinthians 5.15. It's not what I would prefer if it were simply a matter of what's best for me. Because to be with Christ, he really believed this, is for him. But my greatest joy, my greatest joy, is that I belong to Christ and that he is my life and that the life that I now live, I live for him and by faith in him. And so you see, Paul's greatest concern is not for himself. His greatest concern is that Christ would be magnified. His great desire is to be with Christ. But he's willing even to postpone that joy and that glory if it means that he might lay down his life in the service of Christ as Christ laid down his life in the service of his bride, the church. And in this way, you see, Paul is teaching us something about what it means to to live in this world as if Christ really is our life. Let me press this question on you, brothers and sisters. And it's not in order to shame you. It's not in order to make you feel as if you're not measuring up. None of us is measuring up. None of us is living for Christ as we should be living for Christ. But the question needs to be asked, what are you living for? What am I living for? Children, what are you living for? Do you know how the Apostle John ends his first epistle? He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. In other words, here's the great temptation, even for us in the church, to live for something other than Christ and His glory. And that's our doctrine. To live for myself and my own desires and for my own pleasure and for my own survival. But that is idolatry. You know what John says right before he says, keep yourselves from idols? He says, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true in His Son Jesus Christ this is the true God and eternal life. This is everything. Christ is our life. There's nothing worth living for if you're not living for Christ. Do you believe that? 
Children, do you believe that? Already even this early in your lives, do you believe that? Do you live for that? To know Him, but not only that, to know that we are in Him. And it's only as we come to know that we are in Him that we truly know Him. Have you come to know Jesus Christ in that way? Is He more than a principle? Is He more than a proposition? Is He a person in whom you live and for whom you live and for whom you would be willing to die? And for whom you are dying daily in your warfare against the world, the flesh, and the devil? So only as we come to know that we are in Him, that we can truly know Him. You see, if these things are true of you, then you can say, even in the face of suffering, persecution, or death itself, for to me to live is Christ and to die is King. You'll be able to say that as you draw your last breath. But if you can't, Truly, from the heart, say that to live is Christ, and you can't possibly know what it means to say to die is You see, this is what our passage is teaching us this morning. Paul's dilemma is not between living in this world and going to heaven. His dilemma is between serving Christ a bit longer in this world and enjoying the infinite blessedness of communion with Him in a world without suffering and sin. Paul's choice is the ultimate demonstration of his whole point. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He chooses suffering in this world for Christ and for His glory and for His church rather than the immediate glory of life with Christ for Himself. See, that way he's following the footsteps of Jesus Christ who left the glory of heaven, who humbled us, became obedient to the law that he himself gave, who submitted himself, who became a bondservant, and ultimately who went to the cross for you and for me. Philippians will again rejoice, and the rejoicing will not be in Paul. Paul is nothing, but rather their rejoicing will be in Christ, who is promising to come to them in the flesh, in the preaching, and in the ministry of Paul. And in that way, Paul is merely following in the footsteps of his Lord, who we read in the very next chapter, did not choose to remain in that glory that he had from all eternity with the Father. But instead, he willingly took to himself our nature, coming in the form of a bondservant, in the form of a slave, in order to die, dying so that we might live. And live to him. This is what it means to live for Christ. It means that you no longer live for yourself, for you have died to yourself. Rather, you live for Christ, and you die for Christ, because Christ lived and died. The life of faith is a life from Christ, in Christ, and unto Christ, enabling us to live in all circumstances and in all settings as if Christ Himself is indeed our life.
It's a life of boldly magnifying Christ in all that we think and say and do. It's a life of ardently desiring Christ to be with Him, to be with His people, to be with Him where He is, to be with Him in worship, to be with Him on the Lord's day, to be with Him in His service, to be with Him in hearing and heeding His Word, to be with Him in faithful obedience to all that He has said, and to desire nothing more but to be with Him body and soul in the resurrection on the last day. To be living each day in this world for Him and from Him and unto Him. It's a life of confidently rejoicing in Christ and in His church and in whatever service He gives us to do in our short sojourn in this present evil world. Perhaps you have many more years of service to Christ's life. Perhaps you will very soon be with the Lord. Even if you're young, perhaps you will very soon be with the Lord. Either way, may we say with both our words and our very lives, and even with our deaths, for to me to live is Christ and to die and to save. Amen. Oh, gracious God and Father, we lift our hearts up to you again, having proclaimed and having heard your word. And we plead with you now that you would seal the truth of the word to our hearts, to fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we would leave this place this morning going out of your immediate special presence and back into our warfare in this world, yet being able to say from the heart, by your grace, because Christ is in us and because we are in Christ, that to live is Christ. And to die is Him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand now. We'll be singing our song of praise. Trinity Hymnal number 186. When I survey the wondrous cross.